The days in which we live are a bit bleak, to say the least. <coughs> we, are we are uncertain about what may happen tomorrow or next week. The situation changes almost every day. <coughs> will, we, will we be forced to stay at home by the government in order to stem the tide of the coronavirus? What will happen to our way of life, our economy? Things have developed such that we live in what is called now a new normal. Well, I don't know about you, but I pray that this is not a new normal. I don't want this kind of normality. Isaiah paints a glorious picture of the future for us. As I have said before, we live today in hope of the future. Whether you are in school or you work, you do what you do in hope of the future. Isaiah speaks to the Jews of his day and to us, their fellow heirs, about a bright and glorious future that God has promised will come to pass. We will consider two main points this morning. First, we need to consider the way in which Isaiah 62 has been understood or is understood. Second, we need to consider the way in which Isaiah gives both Jews of the old and the church of today hope. Before we begin, let's pray. Our gracious and merciful Father, we thank you for saving us from the guilt and penalty of sin. We thank you that not only are you our Lord, but because of Jesus, we can call you Father. We ask that you grant that your Spirit would open our eyes this morning, help us to perceive your promise of future glory, and then live our lives in the hope of that glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. First, we must address a question that most of you have never considered before. The answer to this question has caused division in the church for a very long time. This question has been argued and debated so much that one wonders if an answer is possible. The question is this. Does Isaiah speak about the Jewish people returning to a literal Jerusalem and a temple? Or does Isaiah speak of the temple and Jerusalem in reference to Christ? Is the temple a literal temple in Jerusalem, or is it the temple to which Jesus refers to as himself? There are those Christians who believe that the Jerusalem and the Zion spoken of in Isaiah 62 are references to a literal temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, they understand Isaiah 62 to teach that Israel will be restored as a nation and that the temple will, re, will be rebuilt, including the reinstitution of animal sacrifices. In addition, they believe that the distinction between Jews and Gentiles is an eternal distinction, though some do not offer much content about that. They don't offer much argument that way. Therefore, when reading Isaiah 62, those who follow this interpretation believe that what Isaiah describes will literally occur. Now please understand, 
We all believe that the promise of, that God makes here will be literally fulfilled. The only question is how it will be f fulfilled. Those I have mentioned believe that the Jews will return to the land literally, build a new temple literally, and offer animal sacrifices literally. This will take place in the future because Isaiah 62 has never been fulfilled. The first rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem occurred under Ezra and Nehemiah, found, um, found Israel still under the authority of a foreign king. Even at the time of Jesus, they were under a foreign king. There is a sense in which the Jews have been in exile since the Babylonian captivity. Uh, some captives returned under Ezra and Nehemiah, but not all did. The temple that stood at the time of Jesus and the apostles was destroyed by the, by the Romans in 70 AD. Therefore, the Jews cannot worship according to the regulations of the law. They cannot offer sacrifice. They really can't keep Passover. They can't keep any of the other feasts, not literally. They have spiritualized them today so that they can keep them in the synagogues and at home. If Isaiah 62 is going to be fulfilled, it will have to be fulfilled in the future. Therefore, Israel will need to regather in Israel. They will also need to rebuild the temple. However, the Muslim Dome of the Rock, the religious center of Islam, is built directly over the old Temple Mount. So there is not only a problem for the Jews, there's a problem for the Muslims, there's a problem that's international, because it, if they wanted to build the temple where the, where the, where the Dome of the Rock is, they'd have, to, they'd have to win a war with all of Islam. I mean, it would just be, it just sounds like it's going to be a horrible mess, but these people believe that God will bring that to pass. Maybe, you know, if that's the way that this passage should be understood, then... Um, Maybe then I don't doubt that God would do that. But there's now there's there's much more to say. There are more details to all of this than I can set forth this morning. However, the major issue is this: these Christians interpret the Bible, Old Testament prophecy, in particular. They interpret it literally. They leave no room for a non-literal interpretation. Now, I don't want to say a spiritualized interpretation because that I think has different I think that is a wrong way to state it and I don't want to say that it's um, they it's understood as a metaphorical interpretation I don't want to do that either I think that there's other ways to state it so I'll just state it this way they do not leave room for a non-literal interpretation now another approach to Isaiah 62 takes the passage as non-literal Another way of saying this is that our other that other Christians understand what Isaiah writes about to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In Luke twenty four forty four to forty seven, Jesus says this, and this is about to the men on the Emmaus road. You remember that in Luke twenty four, the two travelers on the way of the, to the uh, on the way to Emmaus. Jesus said to them. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus also said in John to the Jews of his day, when he was at the temple, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore the Jews, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now I ask you, I want you to think. John says in John 2, 19-22, he says, When Jesus was raised, his disciples remembered he said this, and they believed the scripture. What scripture did they believe? They didn't believe anything in the New Testament because there was no New Testament. They therefore had to believe what was stated in the Old Testament. So we might want to think about this, that when, these, when there's references to the temple of the future that the prophets talk about, that that temple may in fact refer to Jesus Christ himself. That's something we need to give some thought to. So do other Christians. And as far as the eternal distinction between Jews and Gentiles, um, that whole idea seems so foreign to what the Apostle Paul says, because Jesus removed that distinction. Paul wrote in Romans 10, 12, and 13, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. When? Well, when he's preaching the gospel. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he also says in Colossians 3, 9-11, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And then finally, consider 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man, no, no man, according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, you may have a question for me, and that is, well, what about the Jews? Actually, I mean, the Old Testament, they were God's, they were God's people. Um, he made promises of them to, uh, to Abraham. He made pro promises to Abraham that referred to the Jews. He made other promises to David that referred to the Jews and and those things. So, what about the Jews? If 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 Isaiah sixty two is not specifically talking about Jews and it's talking about Christ and those who are in Him, then what about the Jews? What happens to them? Well. 
I believe that before Christ returns, they will, there will be an influx of Jews such that will shock the world. They will place their faith in the Messiah they once and now reject. And I agree with those Reformed writers who, while not agreeing with a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies regarding the land and the temple, do believe that God will bring his Old Testament people to salvation in Christ and the renewal will not be only noticeable, it will be God-honoring and God-glorifying. I have to say, though, not everyone agrees with me, and that's okay. Some things we don't know and we don't understand at all. I'm just telling you that's what I believe Romans Romans 8 and 9, 10, 11, that leads me to that conclusion. Now, there is much more that should be said. I have not provided you with a lengthy argument in favor of one point against another. I have given you a glimpse, just a glimpse, of something much more detailed and much more complex. Don't minimize these things. Don't think they're unimportant, because they are. After all, we're dealing with the Word of God. We want to understand it the best that we possibly can. So just don't minimize anything. Understand that there is much more detail, and there's much more complexity than I've presented to you. I've only scratched the surface. Not even. I've only given you a glimpse. I do intend to address this issue before my retirement. I should say this, God willing, I intend to give you some good teaching on these matters. As I said, this is a glimpse, and this leads us to the second point I desire for us to consider. We need to consider, secondly, the way in which Isaiah gives both Jews of old and the church today hope. Now think of these things. When Isaiah wrote the words of this chapter, the Babylonian captivity was still future, still in the future some 150 years. What he writes about in chapter 62 refers to something, something even further in the future than the captivity, because he writes about the end times. He writes about the final restoration of all things. For the Jewish people of his day, he likely sounded a bit odd. They actually believed everything was okay. Life had its ups and downs. But the people were fairly prosperous. That doesn't mean that everyone was rich, just that life was pretty good. In about 150 years, the people would face the worst event they ever had faced. The complete destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the removal of most, except, of, most of the people except the peasants. They would all be taken into, in, in captivity to Babylon. Therefore, Isaiah writes not only to the people of his time, but also to that future captive generation. And God's focus through Isaiah is hope. It's a future hope for the people of Isaiah's day because whether they realized it or not, whether they believed it or not, their grandchildren would go into captivity. You will recall that the future didn't bother King Hezekiah. As long as things were pleasant in his day, then nothing else mattered. You can reread Isaiah 36 to 39 and regain some insight into that. However, God, through Isaiah, speaks hope 
to Isaiah's generation because there would be those people who did believe Isaiah. They would be people who would be concerned about their grandchildren. And Isaiah 62 would be a comfort to them. You know, just let me give you an example. I look around me and I listen to... um, I listen to the political perspectives uh, of the of our politicians, and I I listen to the agenda. For example, of what's taking place at at Harvard, they're going to have a big uh, symposium about whether parents actually have the right to rear their own children, and whether they can they make competent decisions about their education. And they want it to be that the state takes over, uh, assuring the education of their children. Well. I have, I have little grandchildren. I have great grandchildren who are very young. I'm concerned about them. I'm going to be gone. My life won't. I won't live to see those days. I don't believe. Um, you know, I think the average age of Americans now is seventy-eight point one years. I mean, so I, when you look at that, I, I think, well, what about my grandchildren? What about my my great-grandchildren? What is going to happen to them? Well, I have to leave them in the hands of our God. And the people of Isaiah's day who were listening to Isaiah speak, they would know that what he's talking about isn't happened yet, but they believed him, and they would say, but, oh, but what about our grandchildren? Well, Isaiah 62 would be a comfort to them. Because God is going to one day restore all things. One day he will bring all of this. All of the nonsense that we see going on around us. All of the fears that, that try to uh, that, that shadow us on a daily basis. They're going to be gone. They're going to be removed. And God is going to glorify himself through his saints. His words, Isaiah's words, would also give comfort to those in captivity. They would hear his words and realize that they would not be in captivity to Babylon forever. So while they remained in Babylon for 70 years, they would have hope for the time that God would restore them to their land, their city, and the temple. Daniel the prophet was one of those people. He looked forward to the restoration after the 70 years of captivity. In fact, he wrote right at the end of that captivity. And he prayed and received some visions from God at the end of that captivity. He was interpreting Jeremiah's prophecy. And he mentions the 70 years coming to an end. So he was one man, and there were others in Babylon as well, many others who understood that the time was coming to an end. And um, and they had hope in that. Well, Isaiah 62 would have been part of the hope that God would have given to those in captivity. Isaiah 62 would also have, been, have given hope to those who returned from captivity because when they returned under Ezra and Nehemiah, Jer- Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt. I believe, however, that they too understand that the return and rebuilding of city and temple were only a glimpse of future glory. It was just a glimpse of that. Isaiah 62 refers to something that has never been fulfilled. Not in the the, the Old Testament people's wildest imagination has this been fulfilled. Not in the Jews today has has this been fulfilled. 
Because Isaiah refers to the end times when all the redeemed of God would worship the true and living God in the heavenly Jerusalem. The Lord says, I will not keep silent for, for Jerusalem's sake. I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. And the nations will see your righteousness and kings your glory and you will be called by a new name. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I want to just draw your attention to just a couple of details. When he says um, um, that her that he's not going to keep silence until until her, that is Judah's, righteousness goes forth like brightness. To what is he referring? All the nations will see your righteousness. To what is he referring? Well, if we read back in Isaiah, in Isaiah's prophecy, God is their righteousness. God is the light that shines bright, that shines forth. It's His righteousness in them that shines forth, just like in us. Our righteousness is not ours. Our righteousness is imputed to us through Christ. Our righteousness shines. Sometimes we don't see it, but it shines. Also, and all the kings will see your glory. Glory and righteousness there are put in parallel they're referring to the same thing under different uh, under under different images. Who is who is Israel's glory? Who is Judah's glory? Well, God is their glory. Christ is our glory. We are glorified in Christ. Do you get the connections? And he says you will be called by a new name. What name is that? Well, I believe that new name is Christian. In other words, Christ ones. We're going to be called by a new name. The book of Revelation talks to us about God giving us a new name that no one knows. And then he says, in this, he says, and, a bridegroom rejoices over, and as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Now don't miss the imagery of bride and bridegroom for he comes up in the Revelation and it refers to Christ and his people. Paul mentions this as well. He says in Ephesians 5, 25-31, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her to himself the, to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives, as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That quote, that last one, comes right out of Genesis. And some translations... Some versions read that we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. But get the imagery. We are the bride of Christ. 
In Isaiah 62.4, Isaiah wrote that the land would be called married. He says this, Nor will your land, nor to your land will it any longer be said desolate, but you will be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and to him your land will be married. Um, the church has understood that verse in, in a way that reflects our hope in Christ. The word translated married in the Hebrew is the word bulah, baula, baula. It's translated into English as Beulah. There have been hymns, hymns written about Beulah land. The hymn Beulah land has this as its chorus. Oh, Beulah land, sweet Beulah land, as on thy highest mount I stand, I look away across the sea, where mansions are prepared for me, and view the shining glory shore, my heaven, my home forevermore. Beloved, Isaiah 62 points us to our ultimate future. Our home is not this world. Therefore, we should not fear diseases or wars or government restrictions. Yes, we may indeed have to suffer for being Christians. That will not be easy. We may suffer because a pandemic strikes our home and we lose health or life. That will hurt, and the pain of that will be real. However, we must look to the glorious future that God has prepared for us. We must always remember that He will never leave us or forsake us. One day He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. While we should never be careless, we should never be distraught. If God is for us, who will be against us? If God spared not His own Son, Will he not also freely give us all things? The answer is yes. So keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The coronavirus may kill us, but it can never cause our death. That is, it can never cause the separation from God and his promises to us. So live life today, relying on the future of God's promised word to us. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do give you thanks for your love and your goodness to us. We do pray that you would grant us all rest and assurance in your promises. Grant us all peace and assurance that you will take care of us and that should ill befall us, we belong to you. For whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Help us to remember that. And yes, the future that Isaiah spoke of is still before us. We don't know how far before us. But it's the future that we will enjoy. Help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And help us to live light, live life in light of your promised word to us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.